one of the things that's to me the most interesting about looking at never built projects is you're sort of looking at the unfettered undamaged un value engineered you know the the pure conception that architects and and engineers and other designers see for themselves and see for for the city which you know it's an amazing thing even if reality gets in the way too often Hello and welcome to One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with the authors behind Never Built New York. Curators and authors Sam Lubell and Greg Golden collected all sorts of architectural projects from the last 200 years that never made it into being in New York City, ranging from the iconic to the absolutely absurd. Alongside Buckminster Fuller's Dome over Manhattan and Frank Lloyd Wright's Key Plan for Ellis Island, Never Built New York features literally hundreds more fantastical and fascinating projects from all five boroughs that for whatever reason never broke ground. The book continues in the tradition of their 2013 exhibition, Never Built Los Angeles, and features focused research on each project alongside gorgeous drawings and visualizations. I spoke with Sam and Greg about their curatorial approach to the book and the projects that they were most excited by. So one of the things that stood out to me about Never Built New York is specifically considering it as kind of a companion piece to Never Built Los Angeles, the same concept for Los Angeles that you guys put together in 2013, was that in dealing with a city like New York, you have a lot more specific baggage in the 21st century when it comes to the idea of something that was never built or perhaps rebuilt, because you're dealing with this kind of post 9-11 and pre 9-11 juncture in dealing with history and how you represent what could have been in that city. I don't want to be presumptuous though. So can you guys just tell me a little bit about whether or not, and if if so, how 9-11 kind of factored into your concept for the book? I would say that I don't think 9-11, the pre or, or post 9-11 realities in, as far as our research played uh, all that much into what we were what we were looking at we were looking because we're looking at a pr- very broad spectrum of, of work all, all the way from the mid 19th century so we're we're certainly looking at a really uh, a really broad base of time and there certainly are a lot of different periods of time that you're looking at and, and you certainly see trends uh you know in the beginning of the 20th century you start you know you start to see different styles emerging and and uh you know anywhere from from you see Beaux-Arts, Art Deco, Modernist, Postmodernist, Deconstructivist. But I think you see things more in the realm of architecture and more in the realm of the city than you do, you know, pre and post 9-11 realities, which are obviously a huge part of New York City, but not as much a a part of our scope. Uh, Greg, would you agree with that? I do. I I don't think that you can see a, a bright defining line in architecture or even urban design or urban planning pre 9-11 9-11 and post 9-11. And I think some of the very same things that that plague projects and bring them to their knees prior to 9-11 occur after 9-11. So yeah, I, I don't I don't see there being this this break in the continuum. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest necessarily that there's some kind of thread, uh, either narrativistically or stylistically, that you can see in the architecture as necessarily broken before 9-11 and after 9-11. Only that in the concept of putting together a book where you're picking and choosing and curating the specific set of projects that either never came to pass or almost came to pass, but then were cut down the last minute or however, how to kind of conceptualize that feeling of a striving New York mentality in light of the kind of urban design culture post 9-11. And this book is not at all like... (laughs) I feel like I've started out the interview and I'm pretty much of an overly specific note because the book is truly a diverse, incredible selection of projects, as you mentioned, from over 150 years of history that really shows how 
drastically, just intensely shifting the entire urban design culture of New York has been in that amount of time. So why don't we then go back a little bit and and if both of you could share some of the projects that you found just the most bonkers that you were able to feature in the book. <laughs> There's uh, bonkers projects are our specialty. And uh, obviously, one of the things that's, uh, to me, the most interesting about looking at never built projects is you're sort of looking at the unfettered, un damaged on value engineered, you know, the, the pure conception that architects and, and engineers and other designers see for themselves and see for, for the city, which, you know, is sort of, it's an amazing, amazing thing, even if it's, even if reality gets in the way too often. But I think, you know, the, the plans that are the most bonkers often are the ones that people get the most excited about because, you know, reality steps in and, you know, our reality is never as exciting as what what these images were. So a good example is a civil engineer named T. Kennard Thompson that wanted to basically almost double the size of Manhattan by building on landfill what was called the city of New Manhattan, uh, which would have extended kind of in a tongue-shaped piece of land all the way down basically to Staten Island from Manhattan. And uh, it was not, it was actually, you know, taken fairly seriously by the press at the time. It was on the cover of several newspapers and magazines and for, for you know, well over two decades, but it, it never happened. The realities got in the way, the financial and political and all the other things that keep our most sort of adventurous ideas from, from happening. And we love to look at, at pre-reality New York, pre-reality Los Angeles, and just sort of pre-reality world of design. And I would add to that, when you look at the the new Manhattan plan that uh, Thompson conceived, from an engineering point of view, it's doable. That's the kind of comical asterisk. You could fill in the lower bay. So he wasn't out of his mind. <laughs> or he was out of his mind in terms of what was actually palatable to the current. Well, yes and no, because when, when you looked at the map of, of Manhattan, when he started to look at it, which is prior to World War I, there was already beginning to be this shift where the balance of power in Manhattan was marching northward from lower Manhattan to midtown Manhattan. And this was designed to give lower Manhattan, it's uh, to preserve lower Manhattan's dominance financially and as a real estate focus to give it its 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 everlasting due to to prolong the strength that it wants or what's the right word I'm looking for here for the, the the sort of dominant position that lower manhattan had so it wasn't crazy from that point of view either and and in that sense i think it's surprising that he had very few political allies well it's it's also to me it's impressive that it shows what the thinking was at the time the fact that this wasn't laughed off as complete folly, which I think if somebody proposed something like this now, I think it would be, to be honest. But at the time, this was the time, you know, not long after we were doing things like building the Panama Canal and, you know, landfill in places like Boston, we're taking up, you know, huge parts of cities already. I think there was sort of a, an idea that we could achieve anything with engineering and we could solve all the world's problems that way. And so we, we looked at T. Kennard Thompson's scrapbook at the New York Public Library and page after page after page after page of newspaper, magazine, so on and so on, coverage of this project. And and uh, maybe he, he left out a couple that maybe said this was, you know, an insane idea, but I don't think so. And, and you know, it's sort of, that's what a lot of never built do is they they show what what's what the thinking of the time is. Just I see it in like an, in an amplified way because you know they don't happen, and usually things that don't happen a lot of times are sort of you know the extreme or amplified version of of sort of the reality that cuts it back. So you know it is sort of telling. But I think we can give two sort of contrasting 
ideas to this. One comes a little earlier, and that's Ernest Flagg's suggestion that you elongate Central Park and shrink it across its girth so that you get this um, sort of tear garden that would have gone from the bottom of Manhattan to the top of Manhattan. But it would have been, what, a third of the present width of, of Central Park. And, you know, to our eyes now, that seems insane because Central Park is so deeply loved. But when he proposed it, there were a lot of urban planners and urban thinkers who agreed with him because they viewed Manhattan as problematic because of the the way in which the grid was laid out. And all the streets that should have been closer together should have been the north-south streets, and the streets that should have been further apart should have been the east-west streets. And the only way to go around that and to fix that was to turn Central Park into this long median strip up the middle, which would allow you to add in all of these other blocks to move traffic and and people and goods and everything else that was going on on the island, you know, near the turn of the century to where they needed to go. So to us, of course, that looks like a crazy scheme. And I suppose it really is kind of a crazy scheme. It would have utterly undone what, you know, Calvert Bowen and uh, Frederick Law Olmsted did and the great gift that they gave Manhattan. The other one that comes to my mind, although I don't know whether you could describe it as crazy, but I would describe it more as really having an insight into the nature of the city and being way, way ahead of its time. And it's probably one of my favorite projects is the Stephen Hole Bridge of Houses, where he saw in the 1980s that someone should do something with the High Line. And what he wanted to do with it was way more radical than anything has been done now. You know, he wanted to turn it into a kind of linear housing project. That level of radicality that you speak of, because it's like specifically also not a skyscraper vertical project. It's not this super tall, super skinny proposal. It does reincorporate the infrastructure in an interesting way and was kind of prescient now that we have the high line to look at and and praise and has become such a phenomenon in a way. But when you look at the projects, because the book is organized by geography, right? You can walk around the city and you can kind of take the different areas of the city to the book where it's instead of going specifically chronologically, it's designated by area, which I think is a really interesting way to just flicker through the book because it forces you to look at very disparate historical contexts and compare the projects that never came to pass throughout them instead of seeing the clear, say, historical progression in a style or saying, you're like, whoa, this is what could have been in this area 50 years ago versus 100 years ago or say. But in that, it's a little bit harder to get. But once you go through the entire book or you can, can try to like formulate what the progression is overall throughout all of these projects, it's it's kind of difficult to find exactly a trend in what was acceptable earlier on and what might have been acceptable later on, which is to say just like what we consider bonkers at one time might not have been bonkers at another time. And the same being said for what we might have considered to be totally possible. So to make kind of a basic generalization between the two of you as to kind of what flew earlier on and what then didn't fly later on. Can you kind of make some basic generalizations about in terms of what was thought of as possible in the city through these never built projects, how that kind of tone changed, at least throughout the 20th century to start? Well, I think there's always exceptions. There's always going to be exceptions. But generally, um, and it's in some ways, it's similar to what we saw in Los Angeles. And it's in some ways indicative of just not just the place in New York, but certain times in history, you know, you see, you see a little bit earlier on, I think, you know, before cities, before the city was completely sort of, not that it's, it's always changing, but it's, you know, there's, it's less of a blank slate than it once was. And, you know, different, different, you know, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, in my, you know, in my opinion, I think you have some ideas that would have changed really large swaths of the city, like, like the 
T. Kennard Thompson and kind of change your idea of what the city was on a larger scale. Another good example is Raymond Hood's skyscraper bridges, which I think would have, which Raymond Hood proposed for, you know, all the way down the East River, all the way, you know, up and down the Hudson and, you know, fitted with skyscrapers because he knew that congestion was starting to get out of control and he wanted to build density wherever he could. And that sort of idea, you know, wasn't wasn't considered even that pie in the sky at the time. And uh, certainly the T. Kennard Thompson is, is certainly a really good example of that, um, as are, you know, schemes to really rethink transit, like this pneumatic system in the, the end of the 19th century that Eli Beach uh, proposed, which would have, you know, created a completely different conception of the way we get around the city. And I think in the mid-century, uh, what becomes acceptable from what I can see is, is it's, uh, it's, they're still widespread, but I think that I see more, almost on a more neighborhood base. In some ways, they're even more, there's even more audacity to them. You look at plans, scorched earth plans to, uh, you know, bulldoze uh, freeways through uh, Soho or through mid-Manhattan. You look at Bucky Fuller's dome over Manhattan, but you certainly see things that, you know, it was a time when the cities were sort of crumbling and plans to, you know, do these sort of, you know, save the city versus create a new conception of the city. That's sort of the way I saw those. And and now I, I don't think, you know, quite as extensive ideas are as acceptable anywhere. I mean, I, you know, even in the World Trade Center, it's still limited to a fairly you know, specific area. And uh, I don't find plans to be as far reaching. I think there's more about knitting. I think that there's more of a acceptance after sort of the, the pendulum swung to the extreme in the mid-century and too much was destroyed that we, we for, for good and bad, are worried about going too far and being too ambitious about the way we, you know, insert ourselves into the city. So I think that's a good in, in some ways because we've learned that we can't, we don't want to destroy everything and bad in other ways because we're, we're more nervous and scared and, you know, less bold in the way we used to be. So to, to make generalizations, that's the way I've, I've seen some of these things playing out. Well, I think Sam is right. And I think you can, you can point to certain particular things. Look, by the beginning of the 20th century, there was a very strong movement, which sort of centered around the Municipal Art Society, to look at New York as an urban whole and to design every aspect of the city in a kind of unifying plan. You know, they looked at park benches, they looked at street lighting, they looked at sidewalks, they looked at the width of curbs, they looked at, I mean, I can't think of what they didn't look at. <laughs> one by one, systematically pick, sort of parsing aspects of urban design from the street up, which ultimately, in the end, you know, led to the setback rules for skyscrapers. It led to a number of things. But if you look at that in its entirety, you will say, well, these people were trying to develop a kind of urban cosmology. And I think that by the time you get to the skyscraper wars of the 1920s and then the collapse of the economy, you know, during the Great Depression, when everything sort of comes to a halt and we emerge out of World War II, then it becomes a very different scheme. You don't have these really, really deep far-reaching notions of here's how to tune up the entire city. And instead, what you get, as Sam says, is, are, are these kind of individual assertions of an idea. And typically, they're, they're supposed, well, I guess you would call them reform-oriented. So you're going to take the Natural History Museum and strip away its 19th century Lime, red limestone facade and its turrets and towers and you know slate roof and all that and you're going to modernize it and it's going to bring it all up to date or you're going to do the exact same thing to the front of the Met and sort of one by one you're going to pick apart the city without there ever being a kind of consensus about what is the city supposed to 
really look like and how is it supposed to function? You're just going to take things one at a time. And I think it's a very, very different worldview. I think that other worldview died somewhere. I don't know. I couldn't put an exact date on it, but certainly by World War II, it was over. Well, there has to be some consideration as well into just a matter of already imaginable densities and what other sustainable concerns there might be um, given on the person who's designing the project. Just to say smaller things become have a larger impact when you're dealing with already such densely established city. That's definitely true. And so you get the whole Lindsay administration, which, you know, we all look back on it and think that, it, that it's a big flop. But if you look at the urban planning schemes that emerge out, out of the Lindsay years, it's an effort to address precisely what you're talking about. So they'll propose these kind of, you know, freeway linear cities. They'll propose, you know, the whole battery park development, the the Conklin and Rawson thing, you know, they'll get behind these, what really are mega projects, but they're all designed in some way to address this problem of, of a city that's no longer moving. It's stuck in place. You can't get from here to there. There isn't any affordable housing. And so you're going to pile on some new aggregated form that's going to address that. Didn't work. They didn't get anywhere. Yeah. And it's, there's still, I mean, in the mid century, you're not doing citywide, but it doesn't mean the projects are small. There's still some mega projects that are, you know, neighborhood wide. They're just not necessarily citywide. Some of the neighborhood wide ones, I think would have also been incredibly radically changed, not just their own neighborhoods, but may have, I like to call it the domino effect. They may have become models and they, that may have, you know, that may have eventually turned into a citywide trend. I think of, uh, John Johansson's plan called Leapfrog City, where he instead of uh, what was common at the time, which was basically for uh, poorer areas uh, where they wanted to do urban development and slum clearance, they would have just cleared out an area completely and then relocated everybody that lived there somewhere further out, basically, and rebuilt something large like a Lincoln Center or et cetera, et cetera, something else that was put in by, uh, by eminent domain. And what uh, Johansson wanted to do was instead of clearing it out, build a new city on top of it. Basically use the language of industrial architecture, like uh, railroad uh, bridges and uh, factories with those long, you know, those long conveyor belts, that sort of thing, and build that on top of the existing city and, and have people just move up. And then you could still build something new below or, or change what was below, but, but really start over uh, above. And I mean, it's it sounds a little crazy, but it was something that he was serious about. He was talking to neighborhood groups. He was talking to developer people with money. He was talking to a lot of people for a long time about making this happen. And um, I think this idea that you can build up over existing infrastructure is something that could have taken off at the time. I think it's something that in smaller doses has happened and I think actually may happen more now as we you know run into the limits of of our density and also don't want to tear everything down. So like, I always think of the Hearst Tower as the sort of the, the sort of the, the one example of that actually happening, whereas that, you know, and uh, they, they, they kept the existing tower, it was not really a tower, existing building, sort of deco building, and then they built Norman Foster built a glass kind of diagram structure on top of that. And that sort of thing is actually could be a model now. It's not going to be necessarily for affordable housing, unfortunately, but it, it's certainly still a model for uh, or stuff that's going on. We saw, I, I've seen other, you know, proposals. I think Bernard Schumi is one of of the projects we didn't include, but he he had a, a luxury housing project that was going to do the same thing, build housing on top of housing, existing housing. So as I said, these are things that even though they were not citywide, they could have on their own become citywide phenomenon. When considering as well, just how you find these projects, because a lot of the projects are by otherwise 
well-regarded and have many actual built projects that we can refer to. So they're well-known firms or they're well-known architects um, and that we get to see and who may also still be alive in many cases. So or their firms are still practicing. And so you have a pretty good chance of finding archived sketches and plan drawings and such, sometimes even models to present in the book as here's the proof of the project that was never built, but here it is. That, of course, isn't a luxury for everything. You go into it a little bit in the book um, about the difficulty of finding evidence and kind of explanations of some of the older projects that weren't perhaps archived so extensively. But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that process of kind of digging through different firms or different architects' archives and the processes and various challenges that came into trying to actually find evidence of a lot of these projects. Well, clearly, you're, you're right. The closer you get to the present, the more likely it is drawings still exist. With that sometimes comes reluctance on the part of the <laughs> firms themselves. As a soft word, the softest word you could choose. Yes, exactly. I'm being polite. To release the stuff, partly sometimes they feel it's still not, you know, I'm not going to call that a never built. Nothing yeah. I was ever never built. built. It's only been 10 years. It may still happen. Yes. So you have that. You run up against resistance. Now, as you kind of wade into the murky past, what happens is you read through journals. You know, things used to be documented in a way that's quite marvelous because, you know, you had as much writing about architecture in the 19th century and early 20th century as you do now, but it was all in print. So there were these voluminous, voluminous proceedings of engineering associations, proceedings of arts associations, you know, architects, designers, everything under the sun. And it's all there in print form. And then you'll come across a project and you'll go, wow, this is really, really cool. Like I found this Bruce Price monument to the Civil War. And Bruce Price was a really, really important late 19th century New York architect. But it defied me and anyone else to find any original drawings. Yeah, we never did find those. We never did find them. And it's really vexing because I am absolutely certain that if the original drawing existed, it would be a thing of beauty. And unquestionably, and, and, you know, with Bruce Price, let's see, his heirs, let's see, his daughter is Emily Post. So, you know, she's the she was the founder of that entire etiquette school, whatever you call it. Um, you know, she was the etiquette writer. And they all still exist. All of her descendants are alive. And somewhere, I imagine, golly, they've got to be these drawings. Never could find them. Drove us batshit. <laughs> but what we but what we did find, and I think we we sort of developed a method, you know, a rough method from doing the previous book and show, Never Built uh, Los Angeles. But I sort of divided into three parts. Um, and the first one is, as Greg mentioned, you have firms that still exist, and that's easier. You sort of make a spreadsheet of every firm in New York or that's ever worked in New York as you possibly can, and then you just reach out to them, and hopefully they get back to you. And that's that's easier than the ne the next one is finding every archive that ever existed, <laughs> and firms that that no longer practice, and finding out where their archives are, and then digging into their archives or finding out uh, you know where else you can find their work, which as Greg mentioned is not always in Columbia University Avery Ar Ar Archive, which is sort of at least that's has finding aids and is organized. But when you start getting into, uh, you know, and and, and uh, t 20 other archives that we looked at literally for this project at, from New York to, you know, 
California to Texas to Chicago, everywhere. But then you have, you know, really obscure planning documents. You have the uh, some of the best stuff we got was from a plan for the a new master plan. Uh, what was it, 1929 plan? I love that pl- the obelisk on the tip of Manhattan. We, the, only, the only way we found that was not not in an, in an archive, but it was actually from a, a master plan that never really never really happened for the city. Regional uh, Planning Association. Here. Yeah. Oh, and then we accidentally found a really good image at the Library of Congress, which wasn't listed anywhere. We just the, the, the archivist just happened to mention that. Oh yeah, I have one more thing, and we're like, wow. And that's how you find, you know, some of the better stuff. And that happened at Penn. I remember the archivist was like, you know, we weren't looking for his work, but he's like, oh, this is a great topic. Oh, I have this. And then he pulls out this giant plan, you know, from a, an architect in an archive in Philly that happened to be a plan for City Hall that never happened. So, you know, a lot of it is just is just being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people. Uh, and that's, that's the last part is the people. Uh, you, you, you find a, a group of experts on New York City that you reach out to and they find you things that you'll never find any, anywhere else or any other way. And that's, you know, you talk to the borough historians, you talk to people that have written books in the past, you do look at books, uh, and it's part of the bibliography as well. So that's sort of, you know, that's sort of where we, we get all this stuff. And what you, when you start finding firms that, like Greg mentioned, Bruce Price, uh, architects that were huge at the time, but no longer really have any residence at all. I love that because you're you're not only earthing projects that are that are, have been lost to time, but you're unearthing architects that have been uh, lost to time. And some of them, I think, would have been if these things had been built rather than never built, would have been just as on the tip of our tongues as some you know as some of the most famous architects. And I think of like uh, Howie and Lascaz, their plan for MoMA. If they, that had happened, they'd be just as famous as you know any other mid-century architects that we do know. And that that goes for so many other. I think uh, uh, Joseph Urban, who had plans for the Met and had plans for theaters on Broadway. He was a famous set designer, but he's also a great architect. He actually also did the base of First Tower, so he did do some stuff. But nobody knows who he is now. And if, if some of these larger projects had happened, if he had been the designer of the Met, we would all know who he was. So I, I love that concept, that kind of domino effect for firms that, you know, because they didn't happen, never, never, never made it into the history, kind of the, the, the canon. One of the things that I just like was floored by um, in the collection of archival content of across all the different projects is just the incredible range and richness of the architectural drawings that exist in kind of the pre-rendering age when most things were visualized by hand. And it's just astounding the variety of styles that are employed to communicate these projects. And in some cases, just the the beauty of the images themselves. Um, one of them that comes up in particular is Walton Beckett's design for the John F. Kennedy Educational, Civic and Cultural Center, where there's this gorgeous purple and black and white, I think it might be a silkscreen image of the center when it's raining. And it just it's just a gorgeous image. And it's hard not to have a book like this, this gorgeous, thick coffee table book with all these fantastic images, and not think about how architecture is represented in other media today, in contemporary online media, of being very much exclusively this like highly realistic, but also highly specialized and, and fictionalized rendering style that has more and more recently kind of come under criticism for a, either not being kind of inclusive in its representation of the future reality that it might hold, but also that it just gives unfair expectations of what the architecture might actually be, which, you know, you get to have a drawing. And of course, people don't think the drawing is going to be exactly like the reality because the difference between the media and the actual reality is, is so broad. But once it starts to look more and more and more real, that that threshold gets a little bit trickier to to deal with. So I'm wondering if you guys had any kind of thoughts or or reflections about how just how architects choose to represent their own projects and the kind of design decisions that go into the drawing representations and the drafting. Oh, this is a great topic. <laughs> it, it's, it's a really big topic. Mm-hmm. So in talking about the John F. Kennedy Center 
You've hit upon a specific set of drawings. Those were done by Carlos Denise, who was really one of the best architectural renderers in the country during the mid-century period. He's probably much better known for what, what he was doing in Southern California, although his work spanned the globe. But what you're seeing in those drawings, it is true, they are silkscreen, and they're meant to be, if not touched exactly, they are meant to be seen up close. They're not meant to be viewed on a computer screen. They're not meant to flicker back at you. And I think that that's a quality. It's it's ineffable. It's very hard to describe. But it's much closer to the nature of encountering a painting when you see it in person versus a painting that you're looking at as just an image online. And I think through that era, through the era when when architects were still hiring renderers and some architects were still doing their own rendering, you had an immediacy and something, a kind of temporal quality that was communicated through the choice of ink and color and the dimensionality that can be expressed in a drawing on a piece of paper. You know, there's a palpable difference between a drawing and a computer rendering. In the end, you know, the bottom line, I think no matter who's doing the rendering or what kind of rendering it is, you know, it's all salesmanship. It's all designed to convince people that this is going to be a wonderful building. And we, you know, to, to break that down further is a really big, long discussion, I think. One way you can differentiate between, I think, the quality of architectural drawing then and sort of the computer renderings now, in my opinion, and, and maybe history will prove this wrong, but I think what you have in somebody like Denise, or when I'm looking at the book, you know, you look at the drawings by Kahn and Jacobs for the Rheingold Pavilion, which is the entry right after, which are done in these incredible pastels. And they're so different, you know, and they're so, you know, just unbelievable personal to the artist. And they, they portray something completely different, a uh, completely different tone, a completely different kind of palette. Is that these these are fine art. I mean, these you could put up in an exhibit, which we will <laughs> when we do our show next year at the Queens Museum in September. But these are fine art. These are certainly fine art. And I, I don't think you, I could be wrong, but I don't think that most of the computer renderings that you see now would stand the test of time as art. I don't think, you, you know, they're, they're much more practical and sometimes they're beautiful, but they all sort of, you know, because they're using the same palette of, you know, the same design tools and computer tools, they, they all sort of in a lot of ways look the same. And yes, a lot of times they look hyper-realistic, but there's no art to that, really. It's just um, practical and trying to look realistic. But these are an art form and and they're, you know, they're incredible. I mean, they're, they're so evocative. They're so skillfully done there's so much skill that goes into these and these these renderers that were hired hugh ferris is a great example who you know who did renderings for so many firms and so so many city agencies you know in the in the uh, 20s and 30s his stuff is so evocative these these you know kind of menacing gotham city like shadows and these incredible vistas of the city uh, with like pencil and sometimes with 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 pen and and then you know going to these incredible you know pastel hues and and, and so, you know on and on and on so so much variety and so much artistry and so much work that goes into that I, the way i see it now is that's more or less i mean maybe i'm cynical but i think that's more or less dead so people when they respond to never built and i think that's why i think people really respond to some of the older projects not just because the audacity of the projects but because the artistry and the audacity of the images which now in any of the newer projects we have which there's some cool projects but they just feel so familiar to us and so unimaginative as far as the drawing and the, the art of it is concerned it's just like this this lost art that is was just so phenomenal so people really really respond to that and for us seeing them in these archives up close and personal it's just you know for, for me it's 
the best part of the whole process. You just it literally takes your breath away seeing a lot of these things. Just like you just gasp. And that's the way I'll see it. You know, when these are up on the wall uh, at our show, I think people have that same response. I just seeing them, you know, in full color, big right in front of them. It's just, it just takes your breath away. So that's what I'd like to end on um, is a discussion about what were your curatorial choices that you had to make when deciding to translate the hundreds, literally hundreds of projects in this book into the exhibition, which will be at the Queens Museum next year. What were the kind of the main curatorial points that you wanted to get across? Well, we're not done yet making oh. those decisions okay. oh, for the sh- for the show or not but for the book we are well so for translating the book into the show what are kind of the core struggles that you're dealing with then in in translating the medium of the book into an exhibition well there's a few things that you have to do first of all things have to be available so where drawings are concerned this is a really nuts and bolts kind of a thing but if you can't borrow the original drawing it makes it a lot harder to include something in a show but that, that that's sort of a parenthetical thought the rest of it is I I think you don't want people to have to wade in to the entire length of a book in order to get a sense of what Never Built New York is about. And so we're trying instead to think about the space that we have to use, which will be the panorama that's at the Queens Museum. So it's a giant map of all of New York, all the five boroughs. And to to give people a sense when they encounter that map or that, that panorama, of it's more of a model than a map yeah model that's right it is a model to give people to convey to them a sense of the ineffable qualities the what if proposition and so that's gonna that's gonna color and push us toward choosing certain kinds of projects that you can see them when inserted into a model i mean that becomes so it doesn't is that a curatorial choice or just a practical choice i don't know yeah, I would I would almost say it's both just because you want to be able to communicate the most like emotionally and uh, intellectually potent aspects of the book through the most accessible way possible. And I think in 3D can kind of give the biggest punch to a viewer, regardless of their already whatever they're already familiar with in these kinds of projects. Yeah, I think our role as authors and our role as curators, we're, you know, we're culling things down so people can understand them. And so we can, you know, say what we're trying to say. The book has well over 100 projects, but what we considered was well over 500 projects. You can't show everything. It just becomes a big mishmash of stuff. And not all, of, you know, not all it's going to be of great quality. Not all it's going to tell the story that we're trying to tell. And and the same with the show, which is you, know, you need to cull it down even, even further. First of all, just logistically, as Greg said, finding the, the right materials. But also, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of fatigue that goes in if you're in a show you don't want to some certain shows you go to there's just too much and then you don't each piece does not have the kind of weight that you would like it to have and people don't appreciate it as much they just kind of get washed over by too much information i've been to several shows where i've had that problem and so you need to really distill it and that's the challenge and that's what we're going through right now we have not completed that process but you know in the book you want to distill it to projects you know there's no formula for what's going to go in there, but you're doing projects that you think would have had the greatest impact on the city, would have changed the course of the city. And also were projects that just kind of grab you and say, you know, to you, this this needs to be sort of like a gut reaction. This needs to be in this. You know, this is something that people are going to really respond to. And, you know, oh my, you're going to say, oh my God, that almost happened. <laughs> so that, you know, that's, that's sort of the uh, very unscientific way to do it. And then with the show, it's got to be having even a greater impact and something that we call the must-haves. Like, what can we not you know, it's sort of like, we can't not have that in the show. That's too important. That's too viscerally reactive. That's too important for the like, how it would have changed the course of the city or the course of an architect's career. So this is that that sort of initial pull to you needs to be even even stronger. So it's yeah, it's a, it's a tricky, but a really important process. 
Well, definitely look forward to seeing it in 2017. And, and Greg and Sam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about Never Built New York. Thanks, Amelia. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Arcanex Sessions one-to-one with Sam Lubell and Greg Golden, authors of Never Built New York. Danilo Voinov edits our podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening.